Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Morning, Hope Chapel. Dodger tickets I have not. But what I do have, I give to you. Please open your Bible to Acts 17, and we'll read together beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can direct your attention to the screens or look in your notes. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring, out, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Amen. Pardon me. How many of you guys like going to uh, to the gym? Anybody here? Uh, it's too many people being dishonest. <laughs> if you've uh, not gone to the gym before, you go for the first time in a long time, you do that thing where you like look around at the strong people and see what they're doing. That guy looks strong. I'll do it. He's, he's doing these guys. What are these called? Yeah. Right? So you plan to go and you're going to work out. You're going to do the thing that you had planned to do and you get the, the, the bar to do your curls and you're like, I'm going to do 10. And you're like, one, two, 10. <laughs> Um, I'm going to use the analogy real briefly of working out to explain the task of evangelism. When you work out, you have to do it correctly. You have to power through the pain and you have to complete the task. Draw it all the way to the end. And with evangelism, the same thing is required. You must do it the right way. You must power through the pain and you must take the task to the finish line. We see Paul do this over and over and over again. And we're going to see two examples today. One in Thessalonica, one in Berea. And these two passages are similar. There's some differences. But what I want to focus on is Paul 
as an evangelist? How does he take the task to the finish line? What does he do? Now, just for some context, the entire book of Acts split up into like three sections. And these three sections, they reflect the very, very beginning where Jesus is with his disciples and he's about to ascend up to heaven and be at the right hand of the Father. And he says to them, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And then the rest of the book, it follows that outline. In chapters one through six, we see the ministry in Jerusalem and Judea. You remember Pentecost where the Spirit descends on God's people and they spill out into the streets and they speak other languages The word of God preached in a variety of languages at one time, and we read that 3,000 were added to their number that day. Witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. Peter and John, they go to the temple, and they see the man who cannot walk, who asks them for money, and they heal that guy. He stands up and he walks around, and the people lose their minds. They can't believe what's happening in Jerusalem and in Judea. And then there's some opposition Then there's some oppression, there's some persecution. The leaders of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they begin to work against the apostles. And this opposition, it grows and grows until it's seen most acutely and most profoundly in the martyrdom and the death of Stephen. You remember that story, right? Stephen stoned to death outside the temple, and the Christians scatter. And the first section of Acts ends, and we move into the second section, where we read about ministry in Samaria and the surrounding areas. And we get just a series of conversion stories here. We see the Sumerians are converted. We see that the Ethiopian is converted. We see that Cornelius, the Roman centurion, is converted. We see then that Paul is converted. In chapter 9, he becomes a Christian. And then around chapter 13, we move into the last section, the ends of the earth. And that section is further divided up into three missionary trips. And we're now at the second one. Paul has been going around to places that are far away from Jerusalem and Judea. He's now in Greece, in Macedonia, and he's preaching the gospel there. He's just been in Philippi, where he was imprisoned, and an earthquake rocked the prison and opened the gates, and they walked out, and the jailer was going to kill himself, and Paul says, don't do it. And then the jailer comes to faith in Jesus. And now, after leaving Philippi, he's at Thessalonica. And one of the things that I want us to see is, as Paul goes about his missionary activity, as he evangelizes, he does it in a strategic way. There's two main ways he does this in the book of Acts. The one is he goes to major city centers. He goes to places where lots of people are gathered together. Now, I want to be careful here. Every city matters. Big cities, little cities, towns, hamlets, villages, regardless of how many people there are. I remember the first time that I called one of my friends' state, a flyover state, and I thought he was going to just beat me up. Every state matters. I shouldn't have city arrogance, right? But Paul goes to cities because there's lots of people there. And as people travel through cities, they pick up a little bit of the culture, and they leave the city, and they take it with them. So he's going to places where he thinks he'll interact with as many people as possible at once. And Thessalonica was a big city. It was really, really wealthy. Aside from Corinth and the region, it was the wealthiest of cities. Its economy was booming. It was on the Via Ignatia, one of the most important roads in the Roman Empire. It was a port city, so you had ships coming in and out of the city all the time. It was self-ruled, which meant that even though it was under the rule of the Roman Empire, they had their own laws, they minted their own coins, they had their own leaders, which gave Paul greater freedom to share the gospel than he would in some other cities. It was also, it was also a city that had a wide variety of different people who lived there, Jews and pagans, Greeks and Romans. Also, it probably was made of, a, of up of about 60,000 people. 
Now, just for some reference, Hermosa is 20,000 people. Redondo is about 60,000. Hawthorne is like 90,000. Torrens is 150. For an ancient city, Thessalonica is booming. There is a lot of people that live there. Another reason, or another way that Paul is strategic is he goes to the synagogue. Who goes to the synagogue? That was a real question. Sorry, let me try that again. Who goes to the synagogues? Yeah. And what is Paul? He's Jewish. He's a trained rabbi. He's lived his whole life doing those sorts of things. He's familiar with the Old Testament. So he goes to the synagogue because he's going to meet his own people there, people that are into the same sorts of things as him. And he's also going to get this opportunity for like an open mic. He shows up. He's a trained rabbi. The other Jews see Paul there, and they're like, Paul, you're a faithful Jew, a trained rabbi. Do you have something to say to the congregation? And he's like, yeah, I, I do have something to say. He's going around taking advantage of these open mic moments. That's one way that it's strategic. He knows he'll have a hearing. Another way it's strategic is these people share so much in common with him. They believe in the same God, Yahweh. They have the same Old Testament history. They remember the stories of Moses delivering the people from the promised land. They've obeyed the same laws most of their lives. Many of them have been to the temple. They're familiar with Old Testament scripture and poetry and the Proverbs. They're also waiting for a Messiah. And Paul believes that Messiah has come. So it's a pressure point. It's an acute place for him to go and spread the gospel. So he goes there. Big city, synagogue. It's strategic. And one of the cool things about this particular section in Acts is that Paul leaves the church at Thessalonica under not so great of circumstances as we just read and we'll go through in a little bit here. But we see just months later, he writes a letter to them that kind of shows us this finished product of the church that he's left behind. And we get to see his pastoral heart for this church that he labored to serve. Here's what we read in 1 Thessalonians. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the, joy of the, with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. When Paul looks back at his ministry at Thessalonica, though it was brief, he can see God having been faithful in that church. He was faithful in the task of evangelism, and from that task, from God moving through that task, just months later, he can write a letter back to them that is rich, that expresses thankfulness both to them and to God, that's excited about the ministry that they're engaging in in Macedonia. That's just a blessing to us that we can read this little passage in Acts and then look at another letter in the New Testament and see how God brought Paul's task to fruition after he had to leave. 
So the task of evangelism, three things. One, the subject of evangelism is Jesus. The subject of evangelism is Jesus. Second, the outcome of evangelism is division. Third, the family of the converted is the church. So read again with me in 1 through 3 and then 10 and 11. Sorry, guitarist. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And then later in Berea we read this. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. We see in both cases the um, priority of scripture. We see Paul preach the gospel. We actually don't get a lot of Paul's direct words here. We see that he explained, that he proved, that he reasoned. And we only really have like one sentence of his direct speech. It appears in six. I'm sorry, not in six, in uh, three. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now, in this section, we don't get the full richness, the theological richness of the message that Paul proclaimed. We only get those words right there. But throughout the rest of the New Testament, and even places where Paul specifically is writing to other people, we see what it means for him to proclaim this Jesus. The famous passage, and I bring it up because this is a passage that you should know in your Bible and be aware of and be able to turn to, is in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's the message he proclaims. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's the message of the gospel. That's the outline of Jesus' life. That's a fuller picture of what Paul is preaching to the Thessalonians. The gospel is about Jesus, what he has done, what he will do, what his work on the cross achieved, the forgiveness of sins. That's what Paul is preaching to the Thessalonians. And one of the things that we struggle with, I think, as a society, society today, is how to faithfully preach that gospel to various groups of people. When we go through the book of Acts, we see Paul and Peter and other members of the church preach in a variety of different contexts. Sometimes they preach to people who are exclusively Jews. Sometimes, as we'll see next week, they preach to people who are educated pagans. Sometimes, like back in Acts 13, we see them preaching to people who are not uh, educated pagans, uneducated pagans, farmers. We see the gospel preached in a variety of different contexts. But what I want us to see is that the message of the gospel It doesn't change. It's not customizable. I think we suffer in our culture from a desire to modify the gospel when we bring it to people who we're afraid might not receive it because of its contents. Do you guys know Mr. Potato Head? 
I don't know why that gets a laugh. I just mentioned Mr. Potato Head for three services in a row. It's odd. My son got one. It was awesome, right? I, he got one. I got him one. I don't know why. Like, I got him one. And he like, you know, you take the eyes and you put it on his head and the ears go where the mouth goes. You know what I'm talking about? A customizable toy. We kind of treat the gospel that way. We got to stop. We should have a strong fidelity to the message of the gospel. When we bring it to people, we should preach it faithfully. And I think there are two ways in our culture that we often fail to preach it well. We see the people we're going to share the gospel with, and we modify it in an effort to get those people to respond favorably to the gospel. Two ways. One is we preach a gospel of positive action. We say the gospel is primarily about feeding the, feeding the hungry, taking care of the poor, healing the sick, working with the marginalized, and the gospel in some senses is about some of those things. We see Jesus do those things. They are an outflow of the gospel message, but they are not the gospel message itself. When we preach a gospel like this, we say things, we tell the story of Jesus who protects the woman caught in adultery from the people who want to stone her. We talk about Jesus feeding the 5,000, but we don't continue to tell the rest of the story. Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then he tells them, I am the bread of life. To feed people, to give people bread, and to not tell them about the bread of life is unfaithfulness to the gospel message. We are called to do that thing, to tell people about Jesus and what he does. Not just the character of the gospel, but its contents. Another way that I think we're unfaithful to the gospel message when we preach it or when we live it out is we reduce the gospel to the abstaining from evil actions, moral behavior, don't lie, don't cheat, don't smoke, don't gamble, don't dance or whatever. We get told all these different things. Does holiness matter? Yes, it does matter. But to reduce the gospel to personal holiness is to miss the point of the message of the gospel. It is not about our righteousness. It is about God's righteousness. It is not about our work. It's about Jesus' work. Should we seek to live holy lives? Yes. Is that the primary purpose of the gospel? No. It's one that is directed at, that focuses on, that looks at, that proclaims the righteousness of Jesus who went to a cross. I think as a culture, we do one of these two things often. We must preach the gospel faithfully. Paul doesn't show up to Thessalonica and start a program that makes sure the hungry are fed. He might have done that if he had stayed a while. Paul doesn't show up at Thessalonica and then sort of like criticize the people who are there for all the evil things that they're doing. He shows up and first and foremost preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what I want us to see. The way we believe the gospel, what we believe about it, affects the way that we preach it. We have to believe that it is about Jesus. And that's what Paul believes. So he shows up in Thessalonica, and he goes to the Jewish synagogue, and he begins to speak to the Jews there. And what he does as he's preaching the gospel is he finds a correspondence between his beliefs and their beliefs, and then he challenges them to believe something even more. You may remember last week, if you were here, we talked about the um, temptation of Jesus. Who remembers that? Okay, like a third of you, that's good. When Jesus is baptized, he comes up from the water and, 
and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when he says that, he's indicating two things about Jesus. One, Jesus is the Davidic son. And we remember that and expect that. And the Jews would have been very excited about that. Remember, they're under the oppression of the Roman Empire. They've been passed around from nation to nation of idol worshipers. So when the Messiah comes, he's going to do something about that. They expect him to bring a sword and an army and to deal with Caesar, but that's not how Jesus comes. He comes in a very different way. He comes not for a crown, but for a cross. And then Paul, when he talks to these Jewish believers, these these, uh, Jewish men who are in the synagogue, he can point to passages that describe Jesus. And he points to one like this in Isaiah 53, we can expect. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He can say to the Jews in the synagogue, let me show you a scripture that you believe. Let me show you something we agree on. Let me draw a correspondence between me and you. And now let me challenge you, does that not look like Jesus? It's a powerful way to evangelize. Not to break fidelity with the gospel, but to find a way to communicate cleverly and powerfully to the people that you interact with the power of the gospel. To say, you already believe this thing. Shouldn't you also believe this thing? I think in our culture, um, there's two sort of poles that we lean on, and people tend to fall in one of two categories. We are either preoccupied with mercy or preoccupied with justice. We don't tend to do both very, very well. I think you can use this polarization to preach the gospel faithfully. You can find people who are totally enamored with the idea of justice. In fact, they see injustice everywhere that they look, under every rock, in every institution. Injustice, injustice, injustice. And you can say to those sorts of people, I believe in a God who is just. I believe in a God who is just, not just institutionally just, not just nationally just, not just personally just, but a God who is going to make all things right. All the injustices that you see, whether you're right or wrong, all the ones that you see, you can be assured that if there is injustice there, God will deal with it. And that's powerful to some people. And then you can say, but I also believe that God will be just with you. So let's talk about his mercy. I think you can take people in that place and evangelize powerfully to them, not by breaking fidelity with the gospel, but by drawing a correspondence and then challenging them to believe something better. How about people who are preoccupied with mercy? This is another way I think in our culture we kind of lean really far in one direction, mercy, mercy. Um, And mercy does matter, but sometimes people are so preoccupied with it, they care about it so much, they are so invested, it becomes the, the fundamental quality of everything That they're not just concerned to show mercy, but to be merciful um, such that they applaud or affirm even things that are sinful. They overlook and applaud certain things. The main goal is to be friendly, to be nice, to be caring. Does that make sense when I say that? You probably know. Okay. With people like that, you can describe a God who is merciful. A God who's truly merciful. Merciful in a way that none of us can be. Why? Because that mercy, it costs something. And God chose to pay it. We have to talk about God's justice for mercy to matter. You guys see that? 
think there's ways to talk to people about the gospel that's powerful. One of the unique things about Christianity is I've explored other thought systems and read other holy books and um, talked to people from various walks of life. I think Christianity is the only worldview, because it's true, I think, that balances mercy and justice in a meaningful way, in a way that matters. We see it portrayed here in one of Paul's other letters. In Romans 3, we can read this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. At the cross, mercy and justice converge in a meaningful way. Mercy poured out on us. Why? Because justice was poured out instead on Jesus. Do you see that? It's a powerful moment in human history where God can be just and God can be merciful. The subject of evangelism is Jesus. We must be faithful to the gospel message. Amen? Okay. Secondly, the outcome of evangelism is division. Let's go to verse 4 real quickly. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money for security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then slightly later in Berea, we read, Many of them therefore believe with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But then the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul of Berea also. They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. What I want us to see is the gospel has a pattern of causing division. When we read Acts, we see it over and over and over again. When the gospel is preached, some people believe and some people oppose it. It's just the way that it goes. As Paul goes from city to city, we see some turn in faith and some strengthen their resolve to stand in faithlessness and disobedience. We see it in Leicester, we see it in Iconium, we see it in Pisidia Antioch, we see it in Berea, we see it in Thessalonica, we saw it in Philippi. We should expect that to happen. There is going to be division when the gospel is preached. And what do I mean by division? What I mean is this, when the gospel is preached, it carries with it the offense of sin, and a line is drawn between those who turn in faith and those who turn away. That's the line. Some people believe, some people persist in unbelief. When the gospel is preached, that line is always drawn. And there's a particular charge in this case. In Thessalonica, the, ga- the men gather together. They hear what Paul and Silas are preaching. They've heard what they've preached other places. They gather a mob together. The word is like the market guys, like these young men who hang out in the agora in the marketplace. They're like, 
guys, it's time to incite a mob. And they're like, let's go. They get a mob together. They try and find Paul and Silas. They can't find Paul and Silas. So they go to poor Jason's house, who, by the way, almost certainly must be a new convert. They knock on his door. Jason opens it. They grab him, drag him to the Polytarchs, the leaders of, the, uh, of the, this particular city. And they say, these men have turned the world upside down. Everywhere they're going, they're proclaiming another king. What's his name? Jesus. This would have submitted like a really serious charge. They hear king language. They hear Lord language. They hear Jesus proclaimed as king or as Lord. They hear the claim that that king has on their lives. And when they hear that, it's disturbing because of the way the Roman Empire and the various cities under the Roman Empire are set up. There could only be one king. That was Caesar. And on a regular basis, Caesar, in an effort to consolidate power, he would send out proclamations or edicts or decrees, probably the very sorts that are referenced here in Acts 17, where he would tell people, you must serve only me. And any other notion of another king has to be crushed indefinitely and immediately. You deal with other kings, people who claim to be king. And because there are nerds who go out into the desert and dig stuff up, I've got some friends who do that. We find these like oaths that cities make and put up in the city in response to these sort of decrees. This is a real one. I want to show you one. I swear that I will support Caesar Augustus, his children and descendants, through my life in word, deed, and thought, that in whatsoever concerns them, I will spare neither body, nor soul, nor life, nor children, that whenever I see or hear of anything being said, planned, or done against them, I will report it, and whomsoever they regard as enemies, I will attack and pursue with arms and the sword by land and by sea. <laughs> it's like how intense that is. <laughs> this land had been the battleground um, of all kinds of civil wars. In just the years, you know, with the last hundred years of what's happening here. And um, people remember that. They remember what happens when people who are not king or they don't perceive to be king are claiming at to be king. They remember sending their sons to go and die. They remember their economy being destroyed. They remember all of the division, all of the tearing apart of cities that happens when people who are not Caesar claim to be Caesar. They're sensitive to this. Caesar's sensitive to this. They say, there is only one king. And Paul is going around now saying, no, there's another king. His name is Jesus. And the Thessalonians hear this, and they want to deal with it abruptly and succinctly and quickly, so they do whatever they can to handle it. They're saying to the Thessalonican leaders, these men are going around turning the world upside down. They're flipping the world. And I'm sure Paul, if he heard that, would say, I am flipping the world, but the world was already upside down. I'm just flipping it back. There is only one king. What's his name? There is only one king, and his name is Jesus. The gospel today still produces division. It still draws a line. Today in this room, it is drawing a line between people who have responded in faith and people who persist in faithlessness. And it is always painful when we experience that division with friends, with neighbors, with family members. I'm sure some of you go to your family reunions and you preach the gospel and you see the line drawn. And it's painful. I know many of you have family members that you labor over and you weep over and you pray over and you share the gospel with. I do too. I understand. 
To one degree or another, I understand the pain that this division causes. I want to talk about what we're called to do. We're called to continue to preach the gospel and love our family members or our friends who are not believers all the way to the end. It's not easy. It's not easy. But we remember our Lord who goes all the way to a cross. And we are called to pick up our cross and continue down that same path and bear it also. Amen? The gospel causes division. We should expect that. But we be faithful in the midst of division. The subject of evangelism is Jesus. The outcome of evangelism is division. Lastly, the family of the converted is the church. We see various pictures of the church throughout this passage. Um, We can read this. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And then a little bit later, then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Even in just these couple sentences, we see all these church things happening. We see family language being conducted, being used. We see people strategizing with Paul and ensuring his protection. We see Paul leaving behind valued companions to help care for a church. We see a community that is drawn together in solidarity. We also see like the picture of Jason. You remember Jason? You're like, kind of. Jason was the guy that was dragged before the Polytarchs, the Thessalonians. They couldn't find Paul and Silas anywhere. They wanted to do something about Paul and Silas. Well, Paul and Silas can't find him. Jason will have to do. So they find this guy who's probably a, a recent convert, and they drag him before the leaders, and this guy's now in danger. It may be the case he's not going to walk away with his life. You remember what people did to those who claimed another king. He doesn't immediately, you know, fold. He doesn't tell them immediately where Paul has gone. He stands in solidarity with Paul so much so that he bears the consequences of Paul's actions. We already really, really quickly see a church that is drawn together, that cares for each other. I want us to see, very importantly, that when we are saved from the world, we are saved to a church. We don't get saved and then live a life of individual moral expression or vague spirituality. You are saved to a church, from the world to a church. You can never imagine in the, in the New Testament seeing anything otherwise. People are always saved into a community. Jason gets saved, and he has one church that he can go to, the Thessalonican church. On my way here, I'll pass like 30 churches in the morning. He just had one. He couldn't become dissatisfied with the community that he was a part of and just leave and go somewhere else. Maybe I've hit a nerve with a few people. Bear with me. The church is not a club. It's a family. The church is not a club. It's a family. Okay, um, I'm going to try and use an analogy, an example. Uh, How many of you guys, like, get together with families for Thanksgiving? Most of you. Good. More than went to the gym, I'm seeing. So imagine one year, you're totally fed up with your family. You're like, I'm done with these guys. And on Thanksgiving Day, you just tell your family, I'm done. And you walk out the door, you go three doors over, you open the door, and you're like, hi, I'm new here. I'm new here. I would just like to learn a little bit about how you guys do Thanksgiving. And they're like, okay. So do you guys eat turkey on Thanksgiving? You're like, oh, no, actually, we don't eat turkey. We eat beef on Thanksgiving. You go, okay. Well, I guess that'd be okay. I guess that'd be okay. Is your coffee fair trade? No, our coffee's not fair trade. Do the kids eat with us, or do they have a separate kid table? If they have a separate kid table, who, who manages that kid table? Do we take turns, or do we hire someone? I'm, just, I'm considering being a part of your family. I want to know if it's going to work for me. 
I know the analogy is not perfect, but what I want us to see is the absurdity of that situation. The church is much more like a family than it could ever be a club. You are called to stay, to reconcile, to power through the pain. One of the problems we have in our society today is our stamina, our perseverance to resolve and to reconcile is so incredibly low. That's not the way the church is described. It's not the thing that we are blessed with because of the work of the cross. It's not the thing that's given to us. We are given a new family. We are given a new family. These people in the first century, when they convert to Christianity, they are doing something that is dangerous, seditious. It can harm them. It cuts them off from so many other things. Some of them might lose their careers. Some of them might lose their actual blood tie family members. I want you to see how important that church community must have been for them. I've lived my entire life in this church, with the exception of just a few years. I grew up here, I went to children's church, I did all the sorts of things that many of you have done. I want to tell you, when I was 17, my blood family, for good reason, moved away. And I was 17, I was like, I'm going to do it, I'm going to stay in the South Bay, I'm going to make it work. Remember, I was 17. I was dumb, I was dumb. Um, but my church family was not content to let me wander off on my own. Some of you may remember Dave and Natalie Foley. They opened their home to me and expressed generosity to me that I could never pay back. To this day, I've lived, I lived in their house longer than I've lived anywhere else. Natalie bought groceries for me, and Dave, he like taught me how to manage money and do it better than I was doing. Leaders in the church, Zach, the weekend after my family left, specifically called me out in service. People took care of me because I belonged to them. I know many of you have stories like that. That is what the church can be, a family, not a club. Amen? And that's the task of evangelism, by the way. When I, when I talk about taking it to the end, I don't mean telling someone about Jesus, handing them a track, and waving goodbye as they leave. Sometimes they might leave and you can't stop them. But the task is all the way to the church. Bring them all the way to the thing they gain now. Jesus talks about this. You've heard the story of the rich young man who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him a variety of things to do, and he's like, yeah, I've done all those things. Give me something else. And Jesus says, well, sell all your possessions. And the guy's like, oh, no thanks. And he leaves. And then we read this. Peter began to say to him, by the way, Peter, the most aggressive of all the disciples, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Listen, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. When you become a Christian, you will lose things. You will lose things. But in the words of Jesus, you will gain something else, a new family. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. I thank you that we are able and permitted to gather together in such large numbers in such a public place to proclaim your word, to sing praises to your name. I thank you for all the people who serve and minister in our body. 
all the visible and invisible ways that people love each other as the church. I thank you most supremely and most importantly for what it is you achieved with Jesus at the cross. That we have a new hope, that we have a new life, that we have a new mission, that we have a new family. I pray you continue to convict us of sin, to draw us together in unity, to enable us and empower us to reconcile. I pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.